0: Good morning. Um, Today's scripture reading will be from Matthew chapter 18 verses um, 23 through 25. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all he had that the payment may be made. Good morning. It is good to see you here this morning. We're always thankful for the privilege and honor that's ours to assemble together before our God and to offer him our praise. He is certainly worthy of the very best that we have to offer, and it's also a great blessing for us to be together, fellowship one with another. Is this not your the favorite day of the week right here? This is just as good as it gets, and we're very thankful for your presence here this morning. We are in the midst of a, a series of thoughts on fighting and being angry, and the Bible has this practical way of living. It's not simply Uh, theory. It's not simply something uh, that's studied in a class. It's lived out in real life. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Christians, God's people, do get angry. It would enjoin upon us not to sin in that anger, Ephesians 4. And so, we started— last week or a couple of weeks ago uh, this series of thoughts, and we'll end it tonight. And so, ask and encourage you to come back tonight to get the fourth and final installment of our series. That said, we're not really going to do a lengthy uh, uh, introduction as we might normally. We're going to dive right in and pick up where we left off. And so, this is point number nine or one, depending on how you want to count From where we are now. And that is when you are angry and when you're fighting, here's one more thing to be or to do, and that is be merciful. If you have your Bibles there in Matthew chapter 18, that's what that chapter is about, that's what the parable is about. It's about extending mercy to somebody who is in your debt, someone who's wronged you, someone who owes you. That's the position the servant is in. As we had read there, verses 23 to 25, the kingdom of heaven. And so, this is God's church, His kingdom, the body of Christ. What's it like? It's like a king, and he called for his servants to come and to give an account for themselves and for their stewardship. And there came one who owed the king. He's in his debt. And he owes him an amount he cannot pay. As a result of that, the king executes judgment. Justice is served, and that is he's going to be sold. But not just him. If you read verses 23, 24, 25, you'll see in verse 25, he commanded him to be sold, him, his wife, his children, and all that he had until payment is made. That's only fair. He's in his debt. But it's what happens next that draws our attention in verse number 26 and verse number 27. The Bible says that that servant upon hearing that judgment fell down before the king, and he prostrated himself, and he begged the king, have patience or mercy on me, and show compassion and and give me, we might say, give me a break. Help me here. Don't do what you've decided to do. Be merciful. He says, I'll pay you all. Now, the truth of the matter is, he couldn't pay it. This amount he owed is so large that it wouldn't matter. He doesn't have enough time in his life to pay back what he owes. But he pleads to the king. What follows is the king has compassion. Verse number 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and he released him and forgave him the debt. What does this have to do with us in our anger? Well, here's, the, here's what happens next. That same servant, he goes out and he finds another servant, and this servant owes him. And having received the compassion from the king, when he gets to this servant, he says, pay me what you owe me. And the servant, his fellow servant, does the exact same thing. He falls down before him and he begs for patience and mercy. And he says, I'll pay you all, be patient with me. But he doesn't. In fact, he throws him in jail. Unbeknownst to him, other servants saw him do that. Here is the thing. Everybody needs mercy. Everybody needs it. Mercy, if you were to define it, is the disposition that seeks to overlook wrong or give it less than it deserves. So let me ask you a question. Where would we be without the mercy of God? How would your life be in this very moment if God didn't extend mercy to you? The truth of the matter is, we're the servant. We have a debt to God we cannot pay. In fact, try as you might to buy yourself out of sin. How much will it cost you? What do you have to offer the God of heaven for your sin against Him? It's the Lord's point in Matthew 16, 26. What does a man profit if he gained the whole world, lose his own soul? The whole world, you can't pay for it. Your soul costs more than the whole world. It's worth more than the whole world. You don't have enough. In fact, we sing a song with that very line in it. We had a debt we could not pay. And it's true. Everybody is going to need the mercy of God, and God in His goodness gives it to us. What happens next is when that servant— found that other servant who owed him, and he didn't show mercy, the other servants went back and told the king. You have your Bible, slide down to about verse number 31. There the Bible says, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Verse number 32 says, then summoning him, that is, the king, the master, the Lord, summoned the servant, the same one, back into his presence. And he said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And here's his question. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? But note the next phrase in the same way what's god's expectation of his children to behave like him not close to him not almost not sort of no the bible says in the same way as i did to you you should have done to him and because you did not keep reading You should have behaved the same way that I had mercy on you. And verse 34 says, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. Verse 35 concludes, my heavenly father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We didn't talk about it, but what actually led into this parable was Peter's question of forgiveness. How often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times? The Lord said, not until seven times, until seventy times seven. It's a way of saying it's limitless. We might turn it around and say this. How often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him, how often do you want God to forgive you? How often do you want me to show mercy? Well, how often do you want mercy from God? Here is the key takeaway. God ties the mercy he gives to us to the mercy we give to others. And wherein we refuse— this servant ends up back in prison being tortured. James would say it this way in James chapter 2 and verse number 13, he shall have mercy without judgment. Well, he shall have judgment without mercy who shows no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. God will hold us accountable the next time you're in a fight, the next time your anger is raging. And let's say you're right, You need to show mercy because you want mercy from God. Psalm 103 and verse 10, the Bible says of God, he has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. One more thought and we'll move on, and that's this. Mercy emanates from the character of the giver, not the request of the recipient. It's not the case that you get mercy if you ask for it. It is the case that mercy comes from the character of the one offering it. And God has offered us mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. Point number two or ten, depending on how you're counting. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9, if you have your Bible and that point is this, the next time you're angry, the next time you're in a fight, be a peacemaker. In his first address to humanity, our Lord and our Savior pronounced a blessing on this person. He says in verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. This idea of peace, this peacemaker is one who cultivates peace, concord. That's this person. Christ said, this person is blessed. You remember the word blessed. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we studied Psalm 1, where the Bible says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. That man, blessed, happy is he. This individual is also pronounced here. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and verse number 11, he that would love life and see good days, Peter says, let him pursue peace. What do you mean by pursue it? The word means to put in rapid motion, to run swiftly after it, to be the one who seeks to make the peace. Since we were just talking about being like God, that's exactly what he did. Christ is referred to as our peace. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 14, Paul says with reference to Jesus, for He is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He is our peace. Well, who is the peacemaker? God is. Why? Well, the last thing we just talked about, point number one, show mercy. That's what God did. You see, in sin, when we had that debt we couldn't pay, in that state, we are actually enemies of God. That's how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. He says that at that time, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were enemies of God. How? In sin, you're God's enemy. As a result, let me ask you this, how do you make peace? You need it. Because the only thing we are worthy of is justice. And that justice would be meted out fairly and equitably and righteously because we're in sin. But what did God do? God made peace. How did he do it? Jesus. Jesus Christ is our peace. Who made it? God did. God sent Jesus to make us at peace with him. Peacemaker. That's who God is. Jesus comes to earth and says, blessed are the peace." makers, those who imitate God. There are three areas in which you and I need peace to be made. God is number one. In sin, you need to be made at peace with God. How can you do that? You need Jesus. But not only that, Jesus Christ doesn't just make us at peace with God. Once he does that, he makes us at peace with our fellow man. Contextually in Ephesians chapter 2, the apostle Paul is talking about the Jew and the Gentile. And he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he says we also—the apostle Paul is a Jew. And so, you will find this in many of the epistles that he writes, if not all of them, that as a Jew, he's talking to Gentiles, trying to bring them to an understanding of the gospel that they've obeyed, their past relative to the Jews. And in this instance, in verses 1, 2, and 3, he says the way you lived is the way we lived. He says, we all walked according to the spirit of the air, the spirit of disobedience. We all did that. But God, about verse number four or five, but God, who is rich in mercy, what did he do? He sent Jesus, and so he made peace between us and God. But then, down in about verse 14, he says he made peace between man and man. How were the Jews and the Gentiles reconciled to God and to each other? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Paul says he broke down the middle wall of partition. You do appreciate the fact that it's no accident that when you are at odds with God, you're at odds with your fellow man. You do appreciate the fact that back in Genesis chapter 20 when Abraham said Sarah was his sister and Abimelech confronted him and he said, why did you do this to us? Abraham's response was, I didn't think the fear of God was in this place. When there is no fear of God, there's no safety for man. When we are at odds with God, we'll be at odds with each other. On the other hand, when God makes peace with us through Jesus, guess what we—and how we start treating other people? Suddenly, we're at peace with them. Oh, they may not always be at peace with us, but we are with them. Who do you hate in Jesus? I don't hate nobody. I'm good with my fellow man. Who do you want to be saved? I hope all people come to Jesus. I don't have any… How did you get that way? God made peace with you and him, and then he made peace with you and your fellow man. But then thirdly, Jesus makes peace in your heart. He makes peace with yourself. Most people don't know it, but the real problem is they're at odds with themselves. They're in conflict with their own mind, with their own conscience. They have struggles internally. How did they get there? Sin. Sin won't help you operate properly toward you. Next thing you know, in sin, becoming a slave to sin, Romans 6.16, you will then hurt yourself. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't do it. And then you do it, and then you hurt. Who did it? You. Why did you do it? I'm a slave to sin. And sin is a cruel taskmaster, and the next thing you know, you're at odds with yourself, and you're hurting yourself, and your own mind can't rest, and your conscience that day. You you know what Jesus does? Jesus comes in, makes peace between you and God, makes peace between you and your fellow man, and then he tells you, I've cleansed your conscience. You're good now. You can be all right with you. You can be okay looking in the mirror and liking what you see. I have crowned you with with, with glory and honor. You are good with me. You're good with your fellow man. Now you can be at rest with yourself. He makes peace. What's he asking us to do? Be a peacemaker. Because sometimes people misunderstand it. They need to know that peace is not quitting. Peace is not giving up. Peace is not failure. Peace is not admitting that you're wrong. Sometimes in fights, as we talked about last week, sometimes in fights and in anger, the person who talks the loudest and the longest wins, and the other person at some point just gets tired of hearing it. They have put up their best defense early on. It's a matter of stamina, and they stepped into the ring, and they got in, and they didn't realize that's a heavyweight you're fighting. That person can go the distance. And they can talk and talk and talk and scream and scream. And by round six, you find yourself on the stool, winded. We got eight more. I got to go back in there. You know what? You throw in the towel. And then the person on the other side says, another victory for me. I've won. Now we can have peace. We do not have peace. This person just quit. This person just got tired of fighting with you. And I would tell you this, that if you're in any relationship where this is the way it always ends, with one person talking longer and louder and eventually winning out, and the other person eventually quitting, if this is the way it always goes with one person always waiting for the other person to say you're sorry, and at some point you offer up some weak apology of, okay, I'm sorry, if it always goes that way, listen, that's an abusive relationship and a terrible one in which to find yourself on either side. But it's anything but Christian. And it's anything but God-like and Christ-like. Sometimes the truth of the matter is you're wrong. And you would do well to be honest, as we talked about earlier, and admit it. Sometimes you're the one who caused the problem. And it would be fine if you would own that and say so. Be mature a person. Be adult enough. Be spiritual enough to say, I'm the problem here. Sometimes you're the bug. Sometimes you're the windshield. Sometimes you're on the other side of the coin. Sometimes you gotta admit it. But if you don't, you're gonna create more problems than you ever saw. What is peace then? It is a state of tranquility or rest, quiet. The word harmony is used in personal relationships. Like so many things in Scripture, there is a Bible example of it. If you have your Bibles, look back in the book of Genesis. See a real-time example of what it means to be a peacemaker. As you're turning to Genesis chapter 13, I will tell you that the events in the account is about Abram or Abraham, as his name will eventually become, and his nephew Lot. And these individuals are rich. Both of them are very wealthy. In fact, it's a problem that they're rich because the land is not sufficient to sustain them. And as a result of that issue, their herdsmen get into a strife and a conflict and a fight. It's actually not Abraham and Lot. It's the herdsmen serving these individuals who are trying to care for the many of flocks and herds that they have. And there's just not enough land. And as a result of that, this fight breaks out. Abraham, Abraham is a peacemaker. He doesn't wait around for peace to be made. And he doesn't use his advantages to put Lot in his place. Sometimes people do that. They don't, they, they, they have a discussion, and then they may find where they might be wrong within the discussion. Valid points are being offered, and then sometimes parents will simply say, Well, I'm your father, and that's it. I'm your mother, and that's it. And that ends the conversation. Now, let me say very quickly: sometimes that's appropriate, it's sufficient. I'm your daddy. I'm your mama. That settles it. Sometimes. Chances are good, though, those times are when the babies are down here. (laughs) Because when the babies get to be adult people and you do that in a conversation where they're not being disrespectful, they never should, or they're not trying to be belligerent, they never should. But if you're just having a conversation they're telling forth their feelings and telling you how it is and they're trying to explain and y'all find yourself in a disagreement and you say, I'm your daddy and I'm your mom and that's it. You know, they'll just go get in their car. (laughs) And don't let them have the grandbabies. They'll tell you, oh, no, you won't. You won't be doing my child the way you did me. That's not the best option. Abraham doesn't do that to Lot. Abraham is the uncle. Abraham is older. But Abraham doesn't do that. Instead, Abraham makes peace. How does he do it? Look there in your Bibles, down in about verse number uh, number 13 and 10. 10 10 down to about verse 13. They encountered strife. And first thing that Abraham does in verse number 8 is Abraham says, let there be no strife. So the first thing that Abraham does is he calls for peace. He directs the conversation to peace. It's almost as if he put up both his hands and he said to Lot, let there be no strife. You know, when you are about to get into some fight or you find yourself in there, if you want to be a peacemaker, announce to the person, I want peace. Let there be no strife. Let's not fight. That's how Abraham starts. What does he do next? He honors the relationship. He says, not only let there be no strife, he then says, for we be brethren. We're brethren. To Abraham, the relationship is more important than being right. To Abraham, the relationship is more important than proving lot wrong. And so he first announces peace, let there be no strife. He honors the relationship, we be brethren. Third, he offers solutions. Don't you love it when people don't? Don't you love it when people just point out wrong and wrong and wrong and just want to fight? And you say, oh, hold, hold on, what are we fighting about? Oh, with this, that, and that, and this, and this, and that. And you say, hey, maybe we could. Nope, can't do that. Oh, no problem. Maybe we could. No, nope, can't do that. Okay, well, maybe we—no, nope, can't do—don't you just love it when there's problems and no solutions? Doesn't it just make you feel all warm inside? Toasty, like a hot dog in a bun. Doesn't it just make you—just feel so good? Right, don't you wake up in the morning saying, oh, let this be the day. Let this be the day where I meet someone and all they want to do is fight with me and have no solution. (laughs) Nobody does that. Abraham doesn't go into this without solutions. He says, listen, let there be no strife. We are brethren, and here's how we can solve it. If you take the left hand, I'll take the right. If you take the right hand, I'll take the left. Wouldn't it be hard to fight with that? Wouldn't it expose you for who you really are if you found a way to fight with that? You have to say something like this, I want the left hand and the right hand. <laughs> do you want me on the planet? I mean, where would, you, <laughs> where would you like me to be? No. You want the left, I'll take the left. You want the right, I'll take the right. Whatever you do, you choose. That's a peacemaker. Sometimes people get mad at Lot because verse number 10 is Lot chose. Verse number 10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes. He looked at the land, and it was good land. In fact, it was the valley of Jordan. His eyes saw it. It was well-watered. That's why the fight began. They need water. They need to care for the flock. And Lot sees some good land, well-watered. Verse number 11, the Bible says, so Lot chose for himself. And sometimes people read that, and they say, well, Lot shouldn't have done that. I mean, Abraham gave him the offer, but he should have just—no, a thousand times no. Lot did the right thing. Abraham gave the option. If you're one of those people who give options, but you hope people don't pick them, stop giving that option. (laughs) Don't be that guy. (laughs) Do not be the person that under the guise of false humility, you say, well, if you want to go ahead, and then they go ahead, and then you run them down for having taken that choice that you offered. If you didn't want them to take that choice, don't give it. Because if they take the choice that you offered, they simply did what you said. Now, if you meant something else, ask yourself in your heart, why did you offer something you didn't mean? The problem is not their choice. The problem is your heart and its insincerity. Abraham doesn't have the problem. Because Abraham meant it. If you want the left, I'll take the right. If you want the right, I'll take the left. And then Lot looked and saw. It was well watered, and Lot chose for himself. But that brings us to the final conclusion of this point, and that is this. God saw it and approved of Abraham making peace. So often when we get into fights and arguments and anger, It somehow happens in our minds that we simply remove God from the equation. That somehow we're operating in this world, in my anger, God didn't hear it. That when I say that, God doesn't know about it. Now, if we're asked, we will say, yes, he's got an all-seeing eye watching you. If we're asked, we'll say, yes, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good, and the ears are over the righteous, and he hears. If we were asked, but when we argue and fight, we act like, by way of practice, he didn't hear it. God heard and saw everything Abraham and Lot did. And then this is what said in verse number 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot has separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever." Go back up and read verse ten and verse eleven, and it will say Lot looked at a piece of land, a parcel of ground, an area, and he chose that. And then God said to Abraham, Take a walk, and look northward and southward and eastward and westward as far as your eye. I won't give you a piece. I give you everything. And then Jesus comes to Earth and says, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be children of god god is not unforgetful he remembers and he knows and he sees what's the key takeaway christ intends for us to make peace we tend to focus on receiving peace we want someone else to give us The peace and God is saying you be a peacemaker you pursue it and make it happen point number three or eleven be patient if you have your Bibles look at second Peter 3 in second Peter 3 the Apostle Peter is discussing the Lord's return And there are those in Peter's day saying, they're scoffing, they're mockers, they don't believe he's coming. And they say, as evidence, all things continue as they always have. Nothing is changing. He's not coming. And then Peter says, well, they are willingly ignorant. They're ignorant on purpose. Because a cursory look would say things haven't continued as they always have, because there was a small event, I say that facetiously, the flood happened things haven't always continued from the beginning as they were the flood happened and took them all away changed the world but peter goes a little further and he says with regards to god's promises he says one day with the lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day sometimes people read that and they come away to the conclusion that god counts time differently than we count time and as a result of that god has a thousand years equaling one day that's not what peter means The context is God keeping his promises, the promise of his return. And Peter's point is, since God is eternal, time doesn't impact God's ability to keep his promise. It would be kept just as well as 1,000 years pass or one day pass. Wouldn't matter to God because he is outside of time. Doesn't matter to him. Nothing will prevent God from keeping his promises and not time or anything else. To illustrate that, you and I have a problem with promises and their duration and how long from the offer or the promise until this completion. We struggle with that expressly because of time. Let's say, for instance, you loan me, oh, I don't know, $1,000. I came to you and said, hey, can I borrow $1,000? And you said, yes. I love you. I love the Lord. I want to help. Here's $1,000. And I say, thank you. And then I say this, I will pay you back next Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I got the money on a Tuesday, and I said to you, I'll pay you back next Tuesday. And then next Tuesday comes. You're not looking for me. You didn't put the police out. You didn't look for me to get the money, so you're not looking for me to—you're not high—you—but you you see me, and we make eye contact, and I come over, and I say, you know what, I know that I said I was going to give you— Today, I know I said that, but a lot of stuff has come up within the week, and I'm just not able to pay it. Let me get you to next Tuesday. If I get you next Tuesday, by then I'll get paid. I'll be glad to bring the money back. No problem, because you're a merciful person. You say, oh, no problem. Next Tuesday comes. Here we are again. And this time I say, you know what? I had the money, and then this emergency, unforeseen to me, unknown to me, it happened. And then Now, let's stretch this out. Not two weeks, but six months. Not six months, but a year. Not a year, but two years. Not two years, but three years. For five. Let me ask you this: How confident are you that you're getting your money back? You wouldn't have even made it the year, would you? At some point you would have said, "Well, you shouldn't loan what you can't lose, because <laughs> this is not coming back. That's what it's like with our promises. When time starts to pass between the promise and its fulfillment, the greater the time, the less likely we are to see the fulfillment. Peter's point is that's not true of God. One thousand years or one day. With God, it's as sure. I tell you all of that because he's discussing his return God has said I'm coming back. How much time has elapsed from the Lord's departure and return to heaven, a little over 2,000 years? But is He coming back? Absolutely. When is he coming? I don't know that I'm certain He's coming. Absolutely certain, because a thousand years has no bearing. Why tell you all of that? Because God is exercising patience. Sometimes Christians say things like, Lord, come quickly. Even Lord, come now. I get it. The world and its wickedness and the world and you wake up every day and there's something new and there's something else and and we just feel like, oh, if the Lord would just come, it would at last be over. And in a very real sense, I understand that and probably have prayed the same prayer at various times, but I understand something else. When the Lord comes, it's over. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the righteous who are dead will rise, the righteous living will be changed, and they will go up and meet the Lord in the air, and so shall they ever be with the Lord. It's over when the Lord comes, but it's not only that. Time is over. There's no more time. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 24, then cometh the end. The end comes when the Lord comes. What happens when the end comes? Nobody else can be saved. The day of salvation is today. And if the Lord were to come back, that day is gone forever. That's Peter's point in verse number 9, where Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some men count slowness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why is God long-suffering, not willing that any should perish? Every day God extends his patience as a day for somebody to be saved. In fact, Peter says it in verse number 15. He says, you should regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. It is expressly that. It's salvation to somebody else. Extend it. Let me ask you this. What if he had come last week? We just heard from one of our elders that there were 50 baptisms over there in Africa. If he had come three weeks ago, that wouldn't have happened. It had been over. What about all over the world today where the gospel is being preached and somebody's responding? If he had come, put that in a little more perspective, you remember the day you were saved? You know that too was probably 2,000 years. What if he had come the day before? What's God saying? Be patient and suffer long for somebody else's good. How's he demonstrated? You've read the Old Testament. You saw him with Israel. You saw the wilderness wandering, the judges, the prophets, the kings. You saw the return from captivity. Read Nehemiah 9. Sometimes when we think about patience, Sometimes we think about long-suffering. We think in terms of, I'm going to hold my breath and give you a chance. I'm going to suck it up and suck it in, and you'll get a chance for a while. And really what we're saying is, I am going to do something terrible to you the moment I exhale. What I'm doing is giving you a break now. But when my patience ends and you do it one more time, listen, I'm going to—I'm— that's how our view of patience is. I've waited as long as I could, and now I'm going to explode. That's not, that's not patience. Patience is not holding your breath as long as you can and then exploding. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 4, and you'll get a, a, a different uh, wrinkle with regards to patience and this long suffering that God is doing and that He calls upon us to do. Right there in the middle of love and all that love does, the Apostle Paul says, love is patient. But it doesn't just say that. I think the King James will say, charity is long-suffering. But it's the next phrase, while it's being long-suffering, it says, and is kind. There are some people who can suffer for a long time, I got you. But there are far fewer people who can suffer and be kind at the same time. And yet God has demonstrated both and calls upon us to do both. Not just to suffer, but to suffer and be kind. How do you know he did it? The prophets were sent to Israel in rebellion. He was still kind to send the prophets. Read the book of Jonah. He's kind to Jonah all the way through the book. What about to us? Jesus didn't come when we got it together. Romans 5, he came while we were yet sinners. God was kind to us. Be long suffering and be kind. Finally, this Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and verse number 2. The Bible will say, Consider yourself. Brethren, if any one of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Here is an instance where a brother is wrong. So please, let's establish that. Sometimes when people get angry, they're always told, well, don't be angry. Well, don't be angry. Listen, I want to tell you that. Let's say in this instance you're absolutely right to be angry. Now, I will tell you it's not always easy to get it right, but let's say in this instance you got it right. That is, you have the right cause to be angry about. There is something done wrong, and it angers you. You have the right cause. Fantastic. Secondly, you have the right proportion of anger. Sometimes people's anger doesn't meet the thing that was done wrong. But let's say in this case, it does. You are right for—you're angry for the right reason, and you're angry in the right amount. And let's say, thirdly, you're angry at the right person. It's often the case that people don't match all these up. Sometimes people are angry, but they're angry at the wrong person. The one they're barking and yelling at didn't actually do the thing. Maybe they had a bad day at work, and then they come home to their parents, their family, and their children, and they take it out on them. Well, they're not actually the problem. Well, I told you a thousand different times. Yeah, and you have uh, been inconsistent. And you approach, and you have raged occasionally, and then you've been uh, watery and and sugary at other times, and so it's it's off with regard. But not this time. You got the right cause, the right amount, and the right person. Fantastic. Let me ask you this. Now what? For many of us, if I have the right cause— and I have the right amount, and I have the right person? For many of us, that is a green light for a life sentence. (laughs) What does Scripture say you should do? Verse number 1, here is a brother in a trespass. You got him. He says, you which are spiritual, restore such a one." Is that your goal? You see, typically with our anger, it has nothing to do with the person's good. It has everything to do with our infraction. Our, our, in, uh, in, in, in you, you, you've offended me. It has everything to do with my offense, and I'm going to mete it out on you because you did Wait, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, restore such a one. This idea of restoring comes, the background goes back to setting a bone. So you go to the doctor and your arm is out of joint and you get there and it's fraction, he's going to set the bone. Let me ask you this how do you want yours set? Oh, you probably one of those people that say, yeah, set that, doc. Just grab it and twist on it and push it in place and touch your knee. That's, that's probably what you want done to your bone. Would you do that to somebody? Restore such a one, how? In the spirit of gentleness. What should I do? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Every one of us is going to need mercy. Every one of us is going to need our bones set. Every one of us is going to need patience and long-suffering. How do you want yours? Some people want to fry people and then want to be coddled. Some people want to grill people and then want to be comforted. They want to flay people and then want to be caressed when it's their turn. We used to play a lot of basketball when I was growing up, and I mean a lot of basketball. In fact, the expression live, sleep, eat, that that would have been our expression for basketball. We played a lot of basketball. And sometimes the games would get physical and people would, uh, but it'd always be this guy. Didn't really matter where, but it'd always be this guy who was just more physical than everybody else. I mean, you get around him, and he bumped you with his body to push you out. You beat him and go ready to shoot, and he would slap your arms and wrists way up in this air. And then he'd say, hands part of the ball. That's what he'd say. And then you'd jump up in the air, and he might undercut you. And everybody would say, hey, hey, man, that's, that's too rough. You can't do that. And then somebody would foul him, and the game would stop because he would be so angry that he got touched, that he would threaten, I will, I'll listen, no, we'll burn the park down. We will, you will not. And so he was doing things to people. He never wanted done to him. Let me ask you this, encourage you. Don't be this person. Don't be the person that comes into the room and the entire house has to be rearranged for your comfort. Don't be that person. Don't be the person who enters the space and everybody just draws in their breath because they know we have just entered the eye of the storm. And then they will exhale as you leave the, the, the facilities. Don't be the person who can dish it out but cannot take it when it's done to them. Paul says, consider yourself Why? Look at verse number 3. Here's the key takeaway. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Don't let the righteousness you receive from God become the self-righteousness you use when correcting others. Our elders enjoined upon us earlier in the year the idea and the focus on sanctification. The idea of sanctification is what happens to people after they're saved. And those people are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter three eighteen, Those people are to add to their faith, knowledge, and temperance, and patience, and long-suffering, and gentleness, and kindness. Those people are to develop the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Those people are to live according to the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. Those people are to purge themselves from these things and become vessels' meet for the master's use, 2 Timothy 2, 15-22. And so, if we're not preaching sermons about the plan of God to bring the Christ— culminating in the cross and finishing with the Spirit's revelation, if we're not preaching a sermon about that, or if we're not preaching a sermon about the gospel going out into all the world and saving mankind, then every other sermon is a sermon about sanctification. Every other sermon is about those who are saved becoming more like Jesus. And thankfully— The Bible allows us to develop our spirits to live like him. And so it will say with regards to anger, be ye angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and don't give place to the devil. The problem is not anger problem is what we do, or the challenge is what we do after we're angry. It might be the case this morning that you're not a member of the Lord's Church, you're not a Christian, you haven't obeyed the gospel, and friends, you need to do that. The invitation of our Lord is to go into all the world and to preach this good news. And the good news is Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day. Mark 16, 15 and 16, and he wants that message taken to all the world by those people who have obeyed it, by the very people who have been changed. Take the message to others so they can be changed. And so we invite you, if you haven't, to come and to respond and to be a part of the Lord's body, his family, his church, and to be saved by him. How do you do that? The gospel is the good news of Jesus, and so you must hear it. John 6, 45, the Bible says, they'll all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father comes to me. That learning and that hearing leads to belief, and so God wants you to believe. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, truly many other things did Jesus in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. And that believing, you might have life through His name. God wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then God wants you to repent. He wants you to change your heart, your mind, your biblical heart. Change your mind. I was walking this way. I understand now. I was living against Jesus. I understand now. I was contrary. I understand now. I was His enemy, and I need peace. And so, I changed my mind, which leads to a changed life. Luke 13 and verse number 3, Jesus said, I tell you, nay, except you repent, you'll perish. You have to repent. God wants you to change your heart and your mind and then confess the name of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of the living God. I agree. I say the same thing. He said it, I say it. He is what He claimed to be. I confess that before me in Romans 10, 9, and 10. I do that with my mouth, and it leads me unto salvation, and that salvation is wrought by obedience and ultimately baptism for the remission of my sins. That's what the apostles preach in Acts chapter 2. In verse number 36, after that great sermon that begins in about verse number 14, that great sermon in which they quoted Joel and David and a host of other prophets about the Christ and about His coming. And when they were so pointed, they told those men, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by signs and miracles and wonders, which He did in your presence, and you know it, and you killed Him. And He says, God raised Him. After they preached that great sermon, those people said to the the speakers, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the answer came back, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children, to all those that are far off. And with many other words, did they testify and exhort them, saying, save yourselves. From this untoward generation, they and they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the Lord added unto them about three thousand souls. Friends, that's what you need to do this morning if you've never done that. But if you are His child, and friends, you very well know, Christianity is not a matter a religion of theory. It, it, it's not a religion where we simply learn facts and information. It's a religion of transformation. We take God's Word, His living Word, into our hearts, and when we learn it, it changes us. And yes, we can continue to be angry, but you should not listen and learn God's Word on the subject, and then keep doing the same thing you did before you knew it. What you learn, you must live, and God wants it to be that way. If we can help you in any way, we invite you this morning as we stand and as we sing.